Hello out there. Thanks for joining me. I'm Dan Roberts, and joining me today is my good friend Jake Warnick. And today we are going to have a conversation about happiness, contentment, satisfaction, what makes those things work, what makes those things not work. So in short, we're going to give a good life one more think. So hey, Jake, thanks for joining me today, man. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I always appreciate the invite. Oh, man, I, for me, it's just a, a good opportunity to talk with an old friend, man. I feel the same way. So the topic on hand has been brought to my mind multiple times over the last uh, I don't know, two or three weeks, as I'm listening to other various podcasts and you know, some of the professional journals I read. The idea of satisfaction, happiness, what makes happiness, what prevents happiness um, has been coming up. And it's for me, it's always interesting because it's kind of the, the, the opposite side of the coin. When we talk about depression or psychopathology, we always talk about what makes people break, but we don't give a lot of thought to what makes people work, right? What, what helps someone function or produce good symptoms, right? We spend all of our time focusing on all the stuff that makes bad symptoms. So I'd love to get your take on, on some of this stuff, man, like from a, from a layperson's perspective, um, you know, the, the ideas of, of happiness as being something that we can, if we work hard enough, if we, if we try hard enough to get our goals and to achieve and to accomplish, right? that's always that's been held up for so long as this kind of model of how to be happy if you just make more money uh you know lose the weight run the marathon do the next thing accomplish the next goal kind of all of this performative happiness or performative things that we can do to create happiness for my whole life i think that's been held out as like that's the secret sauce that's how you become happy but a lot of the science that I'm reading recently and a lot of my own personal experience kind of indicates that that's the opposite, that that's not how you become happy and that happiness lies somewhere else. So, so what are your thoughts on that, man? What, what, is, what are the sources of happiness? What do you think? Where does this all come from? You know what? It's, it's interesting that you bring up this, this topic now. Uh, it's something that I myself have been diving into probably over the last, I would say the last two years, um, uh, but doing it in a way that, uh, as you mentioned, a lay person would, right? Like I'm going to go and in, in, in internet search it and I'm going to find out what, what actually makes somebody tick, what makes me tick. And, um, you touched on it and I don't recall if it was on the podcast that I was on, but it was on a, it, I, I don't believe it was. I actually, I think it was on a previous podcast, but the, the uh, pleasure versus happiness and there's a big difference. Right. And when you touched on that, that really um, probably it, it, it hit a chord with me because I think a lot of the times we seek after pleasure mm -hmm. Uh, rather than seek after happiness. And we don't understand why happiness doesn't follow. Right. Those two things are so, especially in, I want to say pop culture, but especially like, you know, in, in a very rough sense, pop culture, including social media, including, you know, Hollywood movies, Disney, all that stuff, right? All these major cultural um, standard setters 
quite often conflate the two, that happiness is pleasure, pleasure is happiness. But in my experience, man, there you can be up to your eyeballs in pleasure and be absolutely miserable. I mean, ask any drug addict in the world how they feel when they're high, they feel a tremendous amount of pleasure. And at the same time, they're miserable about their overall condition, right? So it's a it's an emptiness, right? You can feel all sorts of pleasure and still be overwhelmed by a kind of sense of emptiness or, or lack of meaning. Because I think happiness, or at least a, a maybe joy is the more appropriate word. I think true happiness or a, a, an abiding happiness and joy is more an artifact of a balanced life than it is an exciting life if that makes sense right you can you know it, it might be fun and pleasurable like i'm thinking about you know when i was when i turned 30 i went skydiving that was really pleasurable right it was super fun really exciting it's a great memory but it didn't make me happy as a human being it, it, i mean does that follow does it make sense what i'm saying yes i I actually fully believe and I'm fully on board with that. Um, and the, as you mentioned, uh, one thing that I, again, I guess going back to it is just that the pleasure seeking you, you're mentioning skydiving, right? You also mentioned drugs. Well, there's a lot of stuff in between, right? <laughs> and, and there's a lot of stuff that actually your brain treats the same way. Yeah right? Like that skydiving that gave you an adrenaline rush, mm -hmm. that adrenaline rush produced dopamine. Yeah. I think <laughs> well, I mean, so, the, the, the neurotransmitters get tricky, right? They get complicated. We'd need a neurologist in here to, to really talk smart about them. But yeah, I mean, it's complex. It's an interweaving of different chemistry at, at the very, very minimum. Right. But you're not wrong. Absolutely. Dopamine was in there and was, playing its role as part of that exercise. But anyway, sorry, I cut you off. Go on. No, it was, it's good. I'm glad you, you did cut me off to, to give that professional uh, <laughs> outlook on it. But, uh, and at the same time, your skydiving actually equates the, to your brain, mm -hmm. not, a, not an exact equation, right? But it does equate to the same feeling that the little like button got when you posted that post or the same feeling when um, the, when you snipe a guy from a hundred yards in call of duty <laughs> or, uh, you know, I, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. all of those things have a similar effect on, on your brain and it gives you that pleasure thing. And um. It, when you seek that pleasure, the moment you turn down, turn, put your phone down, yeah. the moment you, you know, come down from the high of skydiving, mm -hmm. the moment you come down from the, you, you turn off the PlayStation at night, right? That, that pleasure seeking is now gone. Mm -hmm. How do you feel at that point? Are you detoxing from the from the drug that you've just been supplying yourself? Mm -hmm. Or are you still maintaining that level of, as you said, joy? Those right. are my questions. 
And you can have all the things that we're talking about, but if you have solely one of those things, you're doing it to gain, to pleasure seek in my mind, right? rather than uh, the, the happiness, the true joy. Right. And I think, I think real joy and real happiness, at least as I process, it comes from a sense of meaning and a sense of value. And when we're seeking after these little highs, right, the, uh, the, the, you know, getting a whole bunch of likes on a Facebook post or an Instagram comment or a YouTube, TikTok video, whatever it is, you're talking about this dopaminergic response, right? This reward pathway that when we do something and it, and it pays off, or we get the desired result, that we get this little zing in our brain, like, wow, that worked. And it's low-grade satisfaction, right? But right. it's temporary and always bounded by this need for more afterwards. You know, there's a, there's a really great researcher. She's kind of blazing a bunch of trails right now. Her name's Dr. Anna Lemke. She's a professor, I, I want to say she's from Stanford. And she's put out a couple of books. I want to say Dopamine Nation was one of them. Where she, and, and she talks, she's an addiction um, specialist. And she talks about how dopamine works within that addiction field so that even while we're in the middle of achieving the thing that we're, that we're dry, driven to achieve, whatever it is, that dopamine has this diminishing returns effect so that when you are, when you are at the top of the pile, when you're getting your gold medal in the Olympics, the number one thing you're going to feel after achieving that height of accomplishment, right after the party fades and after, you know, the parade and whatever is gone, the number one thing most people feel after they achieve at a high level is something like disappointment. Because now the only thing they can do is do it again, right? There's this right. drive to, to do it again. She equates it to this Thanksgiving snack phenomenon um, where, you know, you can sit with a full stomach you are painfully full. You've had four full-grown people's servings of Thanksgiving dinner, or maybe that's just me, but that's my Thanksgiving <laughs> experience. And as I'm sitting there with a full stomach, what do I want to do? You want to eat pie. Right. I want to find a piece of pie. I want to find some of that seven-layer bean dip, right? It makes no sense from a biological perspective that I don't have enough because I've got more than enough. In my stomach, my stomach literally cannot hold anything more, but I still want more because that's what dopamine does to us. When you get something good, the dopamine in your brain says, ah, this was nice. Let's get more of that. And it's a very stupid part of your brain that makes these choices, right? It's, it's, it, it's in the reptilian brain. So a gecko has the exact same thing. And if in, in, in times of scarcity, if you and I were, you know, hunter gatherers and living from you know start from starvation to starvation if we find a berry bush that will satisfy our hunger for a day we're not just going to eat until we're mildly satisfied the gratification of not being hungry of having something sweet on your lips is going to cause you to gorge on those berries right and, it's, and this is just the way humans are. Once we find something that works, that feels good, we're driven to pursue it. But in current society, 
that pursuit of pleasure has started to masquerade in place of the pursuit of happiness. And happiness, as anybody who's truly achieved happiness will tell you, has very little to do with momentary pleasures and instead has a lot to do with permanent and lasting accomplishment and achievement, right? So, but those two things are, can, can overlap. There's a Venn diagram there and there's a lot of overlap, but they're not entirely overlapping. There are, there's a lot of happiness that is not a function of supply, right? Where you just produce more, produce more, produce more. There's a lot of happiness that I, I, would, I would suggest, right? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. There, a lot of happiness is a function of demand. So if you always need more and want more than you have, how can you feel happy if, it's, if what you already have is not enough, right? So instead of turning up the supply as a means of achieving more happiness, turning down the demand as a means of experiencing more happiness instead of pursuing it. What do you think about that? Uh, I actually think that uh, I, I, I haven't heard that before. And, and it's actually very thought provoking. Um, when you think about that, um, and much of what you were saying before, it actually lines up really, really well with that about, there's an old axiom uh, of moving the goalposts, mm -hmm. right? If I can hit a 65 yard field goal, you know, I'm going to move the, I'm going to now hit a 75 yard. Well, what's next? Right. And, and what you're saying is, is really thought provoking because what that says to me is that, you know what, it brings to mind two songs. Um, you mentioned one earlier. Uh, in another podcast about count your many blessings. Uh -huh. um, but it brings to, uh, to mind for me, another song, white Christmas Bing Crosby is singing uh, when I'm uh, troubled and cannot sleep. I count my blessings instead of sheep. Okay. That's right. That's right. And what he's talking about in that song is instead of counting sheep, what he does is he says, Hey, when my bank account's getting low, I think of a time when I had none at all. Right. And, and he goes through all of these different scenarios in that song. And I don't know who the writer is. Um, I, uh, I guess I could look it up, but uh, <laughs> um, the writer of that song goes through a thought process and it's, uh, uh, it, the thought process is is basically exactly what you're talking about. You know what? It, there is time to say, I have enough, or what I have, I am grateful for. Hmm. I, again, I don't want to keep stealing a theme from a previous podcast that you did, well, but I, that, that's I think it okay. goes it's hand all, in It all hand. overlaps, right? The previous yeah. podcast that you're alluding to was one, the, the guaranteed cure for depression, which is gratitude. Right. right. And, and what we're talking about is kind of a variation on that theme from gratitude. But specifically, there's a drive, I think, that, that is almost 
put in a position of worship, right? It's almost sacred. This idea that you always need to work hard, you always need to get more, you always need to be improving. Like you said, move the goalposts, right? If you got, if you gave, if you got a 90% on your last test, you're supposed to want to get a 95 on your next test. It's just, there's this strong cultural urge towards dissatisfaction, to not be satisfied, almost as if satisfaction itself is some kind of evil, right? But right. how can you be grateful and therefore how can you be happy if you can't recognize the status of enough? If, if enough is a mythical creature like a unicorn, you can think about it, you can conceive of it, but you've never seen it. If you've never seen enough or felt it or allowed it to be, then I would suggest that that lack of feeling like things are enough, whatever thing we're talking about, the lack of feeling like things are good enough might be the very engine of misery that is preventing a deep and lasting happiness. And again, that is a matter of demand, not supply, right? And a lot of people, right. a lot of people have this, I mean, and I've seen this time and time and time again with my most miserable patients over the years of my career as a therapist, this pervasive sense that nothing is good. Not that not nothing is good enough, but nothing is good, period. The ability to admit to themselves that something is good has almost, has almost died out in them. And when you talk to people about this, a lot of times, when you can get them to be aware that that is functioning in their lives, they will come back to something like a Protestant work ethic kind of conversation. Well, you know, I, I don't let myself, I'm, I never let myself be satisfied. And they'll say that as if it's a virtue, right? Oh, I never let myself be satisfied. Nothing's ever good enough. And they're almost thumping their chests when they say that. But when I turn it around as a therapist and ask them like, well, how much of your misery comes from the fact that nothing is good enough? It's like there's a, you, you can almost see the error sign behind their eyes, like does not compute, does not compute. And I've seen it so many times that I've become almost convinced, almost certain that this particular part of our psyche is largely to blame for the kinds of sadness and dissatisfaction that we experience almost universally now. Right. Um, you know, the uh, this dopamine reward system we have works really great for us in times of scarcity, when we need to be motivated to gorge ourselves on buffalo because it's coming up on winter and we don't know if we're going to have any food at all. Right. So we eat way more from a single kill than we could possibly healthily eat but we're gonna starve for the next two weeks. So that behavior makes sense in scarcity, but in a, in a culture of plenty, like we live in now, it backfires. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um, a, a friend of mine actually uh, sent, sent me a video because as you know, I'm kind of, um, off most social media right uh and so this this friend of mine sent me a video where 
she asked a question and and I actually thought it was brilliant at the time two days ago and it but it really goes well with this conversation and so I'm going to ask you this question sure her grandmother always quoted to her her grandmother and her mother always said make the best with what you have and where you are and I think that goes hand in hand with what you're saying but her question is this and actually from what you're saying I'm actually leaning more towards asking this question myself as well but it that statement is great and it's really there is truth to it and and I'm hearing the truth from what you're saying but the question I that she brings up that I'm going to just repeat basically <laughs> is it that statement is great but it doesn't implore you to reach further and create something bigger and better yeah and I, I think that's fair right I, I think I think it's a false dichotomy to place satisfaction and happiness, contentment at odds with ambition, right? Ambition is good for a lot of things, but it has never been a good engine for happiness, right? If you're trying right. to, if you're trying get to get that. your family, if you're trying to elevate your socioeconomic class, if you're trying to alleviate some kind of suffering, if you're trying to invent the light bulb, it's wonderful to be really ambitious. However, what you're trying to do with your ambition is to solve a specific problem, right? If I want to get a better job, if I want to get a raise, if I want to go to college and learn a, learn a, uh, learn a profession or you know, master a trade or something, I need to be ambitious to do that. I need to not be satisfied with my circumstances in order to elevate myself. However, getting a higher paycheck, as many wealthy people would attest, is not the same thing as attaining happiness. Correct. Right? It's getting a higher paycheck has value in and of its own. We just, I think, I think really the point I'm trying to make here is it is it does not make sense to look into the well if what you're trying to get is bread. The well is great for water. You will find no bread there. Right? I think that pretty much that analogy is the perfect analogy to explain the difference of now I have an ambition for bread. So where am I looking? Right. A- am I thirsty, mm-hmm. but yet have an ambition for bread? Right. That's where the, uh, that's where the, the drive should come in and say, okay, wait, I, I need to refocus. But yet if I'm, if I'm very well, wow, my brain just, the word just left my brain. <laughs> if I'm very well drunk for lack of a better word uh-huh. and I don't thirst yet, I'm looking in the whale well for more. Mm-hmm. That's an issue. Right. And you know, if in that metaphor, um, if happiness is the bread, and all I keep doing is going to the well and pulling up more and more water. I can't make bread out of water. Water is, however, an ingredient in bread, right? So, I mean, I don't need to beat the metaphor up too far, but 
it's not immaterial. I'm not going to say that you can be starving to death and still be happy. Maybe it's possible, right? Somebody who's truly attained a sense of wonder and satisfaction might be able to be happy while starving. I can conceive of that. It's probably pretty rare, though. But I think so many of us keep going back to the well over and over and over again because there is an illusion that we can get bread out of there. Because as long as I keep pulling more and more out, right, maybe eventually it'll be bread. But no, it never happens that way. So you can keep going to the well of more. You can, you can get plastic surgery to be prettier. You can get a better job to have more money. You can drive a nicer car. You can have all of this water to the point that you're literally drowning in water and simultaneously starve to death. Because what you're not getting is something that can't be brought out of that source. And I think, and that's the point that I'm saying, right? Ambition is great. We absolutely need to accomplish things. I'm not going to say that, say for a minute that I want to, you know, abandon my job that I went to college to, to be able to do, right? I'm not going to abandon my master's degree. Those are great things. However, I know a lot of people who've done all of those things who are not happy. So those things cannot be seen as a source of happiness. Happiness comes from something else, not from the accomplishment of goals or the achievement of wealth or status or fame. You know, I'm thinking all the time about Robin Williams. Uh, right. Right. Who's, you know, that's one of the greatest, most tragic celebrity deaths that I am aware of. I'm a huge fan of Robin Williams. And when he died, it was just like the, the carpet got yanked out from under my feet. And I still find myself puzzling over that and wanting to know what was going on inside his mind that all of his wealth and all of his fame and all of his talent and all of the amazing things he'd done and all the charitable work he had done and all of those things that he had done were still not able to amount to a happy life for him. And that's the big mystery for me. And again, that's why I come back to it. Like you can be as rich and as famous and as universally loved as Robin Williams and still be miserable. So happiness does not come from rich, from wealth or fame or popularity at all and must therefore come from something else. And that's the bread, right? It's something different. It's substantially different. And the engine that I've seen of that satisfaction is, again, it's not about increasing any kind of supply. It's about lowering demand. So in some ways, yeah, it's about the gratitude, like I talked about in, a, in a, an earlier podcast, but it's also about simply being satisfied with less, not necessarily grateful for less, satisfied with less, looking for less, moving the goalpost closer, right? Like if you kick it, if you can kick a 65 yarder, great, that's awesome. Now move the goalpost into 20 yards and be happy with it, right? Like that, yeah, that's awesome. Right, it's it's counterintuitive and so in some ways countercultural, but that's I mean, but that's that's what's been going through my mind, man. I mean, that's that's the thought that I keep coming back to, that happiness comes not from getting more, but from needing less. 
And it's that old, you know, there's, there's that old adage. Um, oh, how's it always said? It's uh, not having what you want, but wanting what you have. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, you brought, this conversation has brought something to mind. If you don't mind me sharing something really quick. Please. Uh, it is a, <clears throat> it, it's a poem-ish. It's a modern poem from one of my favorite modern poets. And he said that it was his favorite piece. Uh, the, the author said that it was his favorite work of uh, work that he did. Mm -hmm. And uh, because he said it was um, biographical. Okay. You'll recognize it when I start reading. Okay. Mama told me when I was young, come sit beside me, my only son. And listen closely to what I say. And if you do this, or if you do this, it will help you someday. Be a simple kind of man. Exactly. Take your time. Don't live too fast. Troubles will come and they will pass. Go find a woman. Yeah. And you'll find love. And don't forget, son, there is someone up above. And be a simple kind of man. Oh, and be something you love and understand. Baby, be a simple kind of man. Won't you do this for me, son, if you can? Hmm. It's a great song. It, not only is it a great song, but I think it's a great ideal. And it is a great, um, it is something that, it, I don't want to say recent years, but I heard this song again about 10 years ago and it, and it set me on a path to be more self-aware to we, to see what I'm really, what my goalposts are. Mm -hmm. It, it created in me a desire to figure out what is a desire to support, to, to live and to be comfortable and what is a desire for lack of a better term, lust for the rich man's gold? Right. What, which, what is which? And, and I had to, and it's something that, you know, like you said, it's a great song. It's a, I think it's a great musical piece and it's a great uh, poem, modern day poem mm -hmm. in my mind. I think it's just, it's fantastic. And it's got such a powerful message that I think aligns with what you're trying to say. You know, be a simple man. And even it, it, it aligns with you answering the question the way that you did uh, that I posed. You know, there's nothing wrong with ambition. I mean, Leonard Skinner was a very um, successful band. Sure. And they've probably become even more successful since the, the, oh, the, yeah. the by, writer. And, by miles, yeah, since, uh, the, since right. that accident, yeah. Yep. Plane crash, yeah. Yep. And with that being said, he had all of the things. Yet he came out with this song that his mom sat him down and told him, what are you doing? Right. Well, and, and the question that comes to my mind hearing you talk about that self-discovery that you went on, right, is as you did that self-discovery, as you, as you first sat down and realized that there was a part of yourself to discover, right? right. And you started kind of doing that self, I mean, 
inventory or that self-assessment, whatever you want to call it, I think that that moment, uh, and, and tell me if this happened for you, I think that that moment of self-discovery, when you recognize that, I don't know, what's the right way to put this, that maybe you've been pursuing something that you didn't even necessarily know that you wanted, right? Like that, that realization that you've been sailing all of these years, but you didn't even know where you were headed. Yes. And that kind of, that kind of recogni recognition, like I need to not only gain my bearings, I need to find a heading. I need to pick where I'm going and what matters to me. Right. I mean, was, was that in the mix for you? Was that that kind of awareness, those tumblers falling in place to that, that happened for you as you were, you know, listening to this song and going through that process? I didn't think about it so eloquently that you just put it, but uh, let's see, I'm writing that down. Find my heading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, I will say, in my own mind, yeah, I needed to get my bearings. I needed to know where I was. Yeah. And after I figured out where I was, I, I needed to find that heading. Where am I going? Mm -hmm. What what drives me? Right. So, the, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was, again, yeah, not, I was just going to say, it wasn't so eloquently put in my brain, uh, but uh, nor was it so simple. But in in context, it was absolutely that exact tumbler that fell, to borrow your term. Hmm. Um, that it, yeah, it absolutely was. I needed to find my heading after I figured out my parents. Where am I at? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm a member of a Facebook group. It's like a men's kind of advice slash support group um and there was a guy in that group and this is what this is the kind of event as you will that set me kind of thinking about this most recently and and this comment happened or this conversation happened two weeks ago and this guy puts in there he says i'm i'm paraphrasing but he says i'm 65 years old and i just sold a really successful business for a couple million dollars and blah, blah, blah. And he's talking about all the stuff that he has. And then he talks about, he goes kind of through this list of all the reasons why he should be happy, right? And then he gets to the bottom and he says, I thought at this point in my life, I would be satisfied and content. But I find myself looking around all the stuff that I have at my boat and my big house and whatever. And I just, I can't, I don't feel like I want, I, I can stop. It's not enough. Right. So he's yeah. talking about trying to, trying to get ready to retire and how he just sold the business for multiple millions of dollars, which I think most people would call the golden parachute of their dreams. But for him, it wasn't sufficient and he was dissatisfied. And that's what he was talking to the group about. He's like, what do I do guys? I'm dissatisfied with my life, even though I have everything that I set out to accomplish. And how do I retire or can I retire? Or maybe I don't even want to retire. I don't know what to do with my life. Essentially, he's a 65-year-old man having a quarter-life crisis. Um, 
so I started having a conversation with him among a bunch of other people posting kind of thoughts and encouragement and things to say. And what I kept coming back to was, have you ever in your life actually defined the term enough? Does that even exist for you as a thing that you have, a, that you have nailed down conceptually and would recognize if you saw it? And he, he responded back to my comment. He's like, you know, I, I don't know if I ever have. And then I said, man, how are you supposed to know if you've achieved something if you don't know what that thing is? Maybe that's where you start. Maybe you actually put an actual line on the ground that will show you when you have finished a particular race. Because instead, if you don't do that, all you're doing is racing, but you don't know where the finish line is. The only thing you have to judge is your pace, how much effort you're putting in. But you have no, if there is no finish line, you can't ever finish. All you can do is race hard or soft or, you know, go, you know, push yourself really hard or, or take it easy for a little bit. And the only thing you have to compare is your relative effort to the last time you checked in with yourself. Again, a goal that isn't defined cannot be achieved, but we don't do ourselves the service very often of defining our goals in terms of achievement, right? How much money do you need to earn over the course of a 40-year career? What kind of house do you need to live in? How much retirement do you need to have? If you haven't actually pinned that down, you will never have enough because you haven't defined enough. So, Anyway, so we had a conversation around that and it was, it was pretty lively. And then I, and then I said, you know, if your definition of enough is to not be starving to death, then you've got it, man. You've made it. Good job. You've achieved it. And you'll never have to worry about another thing. On the other hand, if your definition of enough is to be 25 years old again and cruising around the world with a bottomless pit of gold, you'll never achieve that. Like, what, what do you actually want? Anyway, so that got my, got my wheels spinning, this conversation that I had. Um, and I've kind of, you know, been stuck on this idea ever since trying to really, I guess I'm just trying to operationalize it for myself so that I can have something like a product, a useful product I can bring to my clients in therapy um, as these kinds of topics come up. So, you know, anyway, I'm just rambling now, but, uh, no, it's, it's actually a good ramble and, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pose another question to you. Um, and it's, I'm not, uh, being counterintuitive or I'm, I'm not being counter to what you're saying, but what I'm, I am asking this, I personally believe, how do I say this without like diving into a deeper, <laughs> another subject? Um, I personally believe that I am never good enough. Now, I don't mean that in the negative connotation, like, oh man, I'm going to kick the can and I'm going to Eeyore, I'm not good <laughs> enough. I'm sorry, my friends. Do no, I don't, I don't mean that. What I mean is my potential of who I am or who I could be tomorrow is better than who I could be today. I can give more. I can be more. I can present more. I can, um, 
I can uh, be, you know, go to bed earlier, wake up earlier. I can, uh, you know, all of the little things that maybe, you know, that I want to, all the little habits, I can do that tomorrow. Right. I would say the extreme version of the point that you're giving. Now, again, I, I want to preface this by saying the extreme version is a lot of what I see out there is, Hey, you know what? You're perfect the way you are. And, Hmm. And I actually think that mindset is dangerous because nobody's perfect. Yeah. And, and I think that if you're not constant, if you don't couple your mindset, the, the mindset that you're bringing to the table anyway, with the mindset of, of drive, of ambition, of who could I be, how could I be even more happy tomorrow? Mm-hmm. I think that that's a better way to put it than what I was going to put it. How could I be even more happy tomorrow? And I'd love that you put that, that you brought that up, right? Because this illustrates this conflation of concepts that we have. This idea of satisfaction is not the same thing as being self-satisfied, right? So those are different ideas. It sells a lot of coffee mugs and t-shirts to say, you're beautiful, you know, you're perfect as you are, you're a pretty, pretty princess, whatever. If it fits inside a Hallmark card, it doesn't count as a legitimate philosophy, right? That's just, let's, let's set that standard right off the bat. Yeah, you're a good person. But if you allow that, if you allow perfect to take the position of good, then perfect no longer means anything right? Perfect and good are not synonymous, not really, but we use them synonymously, unfortunately. So this idea of good, you're a good person. If you said that to somebody like, no, I think you're a good person. That's, you're giving them sympathy. That's like, that's a backhanded compliment, right? It's uh, because the term itself has drifted away from its actual meaning. So it's, again, this is, you know, I can harp on this forever, but it's this idea of good enough has now become Sim- has, has now become synonymous with bad. Um, okay has become synonymous with barely acceptable. So the way I think that folds into what you're talking about, what you're talking about is an awareness of the potential for growth. There is potential more there. It's not going to sell a lot of t-shirts, but the, but the phenomenon there or the philosophy there is I am enough but I can be more. I think in that phrase, there's a lot of power and a lot of truth. I don't and a ton of t-shirts. <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> right? But, there's, but it's complicated, right? It's complex. I am enough, but I can be more. Allows for you to recognize that the very nature of yourself, your very potential to be more comes from your already being good. And if you weren't good in its true sense, then you wouldn't have the potential to be gooder, right? Better, more, more able. You but made you my eye twitch with that word. But okay, <laughs> right? <don't> <laughs> <laughs> I have a five-year-old man. Um, <laughs> right. So the uh, 
the, but, the, but unfortunately, there's this kind of converse trickle down where people will say, since I can be more, since I can be good, since I can be better, I must therefore not already be good. And that is not factual. That is not true. In fact, it's not allowable by logic. Anything that has the potential to grow must already inherently be good and have the value within it. The potential within it for growth equates to good, right? This goes back to that, that parallel, that, to, that, to that parable of the sower, right? That you know a seed is good if it grows, right? Um, I can get all sorts of, you know, spiritual and philosophical on this line. And a lot of that's, a lot of that is where this comes from for me, right? This sense that a lot of the, the, the sweet philosophical truths of the, of the primary religions have been co-opted by this self-adoration culture where, you know, whatever you know, pick your pick your phrasing of this if every if every woman is a queen you know if every man is a king all this blah 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 yeah it feels good it's it's ego stroking it sells a lot of t-shirts but it's disingenuous not every man is a king not every man wants to be king and it also supposes, and this is where I think the real danger lies, it also supposes that every woman needs to be a queen in order to be valued at all, that anything less than a queen is not acceptable. And that's garbage. Because some of the happiest people in the world have almost nothing. And some of the most miserable people in the world have almost everything. So maybe all of these queens instead of straightening each other's crowns ought to take each other's crowns off and stop trying to be something they're not and instead appreciate and believe in and enjoy and celebrate what they actually are and find value within what they have instead of seeking after somebody else's standard of value right my my mom is probably nobody's paragon of accomplishment. She worked as a secretary, as an office manager for, uh, let's see, how old am I? 45 years in the same industry and had no ambitions to climb the ladder. Um, she started as a secretary and now is an office manager. Like that's how much up the ladder movement she's had. According to a lot of people, She's not driven enough, isn't career-minded enough. I'm pretty sure my mom would say, who cares? Right. Right. She never wanted that. She never needed it. She never bought into the ideal that that's what she should be. That's my least favorite word in the English language, should. Nobody has an authority to tell her what she should or should not be besides herself and her conscience. So she follows those dictates and lives a life according to what she thinks is good and right. And for that reason, my mom's a pretty happy person, right? Pretty content across the board, um, successful at some, at some level, right? Compared to third world countries, she's massively successful. Compared to Fortune 500 CEOs, she hasn't even hit the radar yet. 
But none of that has mattered to her because that's not the metric that she's using. That's not the litmus according to which she's judging herself. And happiness is hers to have because she is content with what she has. She doesn't need anything more. There's, she has not subscribed to the authority of the should in the sky, right? The great spaghetti monster in the sky that gives everybody this should authority. Um, she, does, she denies that. And instead will define her own happiness however she sees fit and therefore is unsinkable in her happiness. Despite all the tragedies that have happened to her life, you know, my dad's death and divorces and all that other stuff, she's still happy because she doesn't tell herself she can't be. That make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's actually a, an interesting body of study uh, I was looking for the um, for the original uh, scientists who put this out, but um, the last time I heard it, it was actually Dr. Lemke in a in a podcast was citing this research. But there's a study that shows that if you have too many options, if you have too much choice, if instead of being able to choose from between A or B, if instead you have to choose between A through you know triple A. Like the think about the the uh, the cereal aisle at the supermarket, right? Yes. If you have this bounty of things to choose from, everything that you have to choose from starts looking less appealing on an individual level. And they've done this research many different ways. They've, they've sliced this problem many different ways, looking at it through all sorts of different angles, and the phenomenon holds true. If you have to judge the attractiveness of two individuals of the opposite gender, right, or whoever you're attracted to, right, then if you had to choose, choose just two, the one you find more attractive is going to get a relatively high score, right? Let's, you know, on a, on a score of zero to 10, you're going to give the more attractive of two people probably a six or a seven, maybe an eight, right? If you have 20 people to choose from, you probably wouldn't give any of them more than a seven. They all look less attractive because there's too many of them to choose from. And you can start finding fault flaws with everyone. So how this ties in to this idea of satisfaction is if you are actively comparing yourself to 5,000 people and yourself is just one of the 5,000 people, all of it looks unsatisfying, including yourself, right? So in this, I think this is a modern phenomenon, you know, on Facebook, social media, whatever, you have this instant access to so many different people to compare yourself to, and everything starts to look shabby and drab when you have all of these different options. Now, this is a really well-established phenomenon, and it kicks us in the teeth, right? Because it operates without us being aware of it, and is definitely actively impacting us at all times. And I think, again, a solution to this idea is to take a look inside yourself, like you did, right? Sitting down listening to Simple Man and hearing those words, do something you love and understand. Yeah. Right? How many people out there are trying to do something that somebody else told them they need to love, told them they need to be? How many people have spent thousands of dollars on plastic surgery because 
somebody told them they need to have a nose like Taylor Swift or whatever, right? How many people spend thousands of dollars and countless hours in the gym because they're trying to have abs like Chris Hemsworth? Why do you need to have abs like Chris Helmsworth? Maybe you genuinely want to. Maybe that's actually what motivates you. Awesome. But maybe not. And I think the biggest piece that's missing for a lot of people is that determination within themselves. Like that step that you took after listening to Simple Man to step back and be like, I don't even, where am I trying to go? Where am I moving in life? Where do I want, what do I want to achieve? And without that inventory, without that self-awareness, man, you're just spinning your wheels. And I say this to a lot of my, to a lot of my patients, if you don't know where you're going, everywhere is wrong. Hmm. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's big. It's only when you know where you're going that you can decide what you can leave behind. If I know that I'm going out to the ocean, I can leave my climbing ropes behind. I will not need them. I do not need to have them. They will serve me no purpose. If I'm going out to sea, what I need is a life jacket. And right, I can all of the stuff that is no longer useful for me, if I'm not going to a certain place, I can leave behind and feel grateful that I have unburdened myself. Right? Right. But if I don't know where I'm going, I have to keep everything. I can't unpack anything. And I think that's what I'm talking about when I talk about lowering expectations and lower and, and you know, instead of increasing the supply of stuff, lowering the demand of stuff, right? And, you know, allowing yourself the permission, this radical thought that you don't need, not only do you not need to accomplish what other people have accomplished, but you don't need to, you don't need to like what they've accomplished. You don't need to think it's good. You don't need to even appreciate what they've accomplished in order for your own accomplishments to still be great and, 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 and lovable, right? I think it's a, it's a completely different way of looking at happiness. And I think it's a pretty far departure from what most people would say creates a good life. I mean, I don't know. I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm circulating in the wrong pool. Um, but I mean, I, how do you see that, man? I, I'm thinking from a, from a psychotherapist perspective, how do you see all this stuff? Is, does it resonate? Do you see it in your own life? Well, it, uh, yes, yes. And yes. Uh, I absolutely see it in my own life. I see it, uh, with my, my friends, my family, um, myself. Um, there is a, there's an old, old adage that kind of could be a part of this conversation and that's keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a big part of, of moving the goalpost as it were, right. Mm -hmm. Because the Joneses are these mythical, uh, neighbors who live up on the hill that everybody's trying to keep up with and nobody really knows who they are and right. and so everybody's trying to I even think adding that adage to our conversation I think it I think the whole mindset is even more dangerous than just I, I guess the the attitude of 
I need to get there, the attitude of drive. I think the whole why behind the attitude is really, really important too. Um, And And, and it's that question that so few people are asking themselves. Why do I need to keep up with the Joneses? Right. What What will I have if I catch up to or surpass the Joneses? Right. What will I do in my life? Will I be looking forward to this great new glorious future? Or will I be looking in my rear view mirror to see if the Joneses are now gaining on me? Is that what matters to me? To have a comparatively good life to somebody that I don't even necessarily like? <laughs> and that's and that's a gut check. And I think that's a gut check that we've not, that we've gotten away from doing because it's so universally accepted. Like if you're on TikTok, you're supposed to try to get as many views as possible. Um, you know, there's, the, there, there's a, a YouTube channel that I watch where I really respect the guy the YouTube channel is called Smarter Every Day. No, I'm not, <laughs> not being sponsored by Smarter Every Day. But he's a, he's a NASA scientist, right? He was a NASA engineer who's now become a YouTuber. And he hosts these really cool videos about, you know, science and physics and all sorts of cool experiments he does in his backyard. Um, there's a, a current phenomenon on YouTube, which is people making shorts, you know, videos that are less than a minute long, which is YouTube's attempt to keep up with TikTok. So it seems to me, but he got on a video and he said, he specifically explained why he's not going to do shorts. And he's like, you know, talks about YouTube metrics and the, and the trackers and all the, and, and all the um, emphasis on hits and individual watches and unique watches and how his format, his long format doesn't follow that algorithm ideally. So there's a lot of pressure on him as a YouTube producer and it's financial pressure, right? He's, he's losing money. There's a lot of pressure on him as a YouTube producer, content creator to start following this trend. But he put out a video, he's like, I'm not gonna do that because that's not what I set out to do. That's not my voice. My voice is a longer format, have a discussion, talk about a phenomenon, actually learn something and get smarter every day. Not, hey, what's this cool little titillating thing I can show to get 500 million people to click on a video of me, you know, smashing a pumpkin, right? He's not going to do that. That would cheapen him and distance him from his intended message. Now, the price that he pays for that is in clicks and revenue at whatever. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there like me who really admire him for sticking to his true self and his original message rather than following the algorithms and, you know, and, and going out there just yearning for clicks at any cost. You know, so I think, I mean, his name is Destin. I don't know the guy. But I feel like I do because I've watched so many of his videos, <laughs> right? So I really admire him for doing that and for having that knowledge of self and the satisfaction that I can do it my way. My way is good. It might not produce some kind of useful or, or, or desired end result, right? But I was never out there to do that end result. I was never out there to be the most clicked on short film creator on YouTube. That's not what I set out to do. That would be a departure from my message. Instead, I want to stay true to what I set out to do and recognize the value inherent in what I'm already doing. And that's what I really admired. He's recognizing the value in what he's already doing rather than chasing after this idea that I have to get what somebody else is getting 
because of this scarcity instinct that we have, right? We keep up with the Joneses because of a very primal instinct in our brain that if somebody else has food, we need to go club them over the head and steal their foods because, so that we don't starve to death, right? And it's this constant comparison within, within the social creature. Whenever you see somebody who has something you don't have, that might've exposed a threat or a, or a lack that is gonna end your line in the gene pool. Right, so going back to times of scarcity, all this stuff makes sense. If there's another family across the cave who have figured out how to make bread, I'm probably not gonna keep, you know, trying to catch squirrels with my bare hands. I'm gonna try to learn how to make bread. I'm gonna try to gain what they have. That makes sense in an environment of scarcity, but in an environment of plenty, the wheels fall off. And we continue to be driven if we don't do that gut check to still want things we don't have instead of wanting what we do have and appreciating what we do have. And that is the engine of happiness, satisfaction, gratefulness, right? Expressing gratitude, doing for others, recognizing that you not only do you have enough for yourself, but you have enough to help other people too, right? That is that is the, the next generation up of gratitude when you feel so grateful that you want to pay it forward. All of those things produce monumental happiness um, and, none of, and may not be pleasurable at all in the sense of, wow, this was a lot of fun. But you know, it, most people, if you think about the most meaningful things that you've accomplished in your life that bring you the most joy, I'm willing to bet nine times out of 10 they weren't even fun, let alone really pleasurable, right? I mean, am, am I off base there? What, what's your take, Jake? <laughs> no, I, it's, it's a, the way you said that um, made me chuckle. Uh, but, uh, you know, I find, so um, Simon Sinek, I, I don't know if you know who that is or sure. not. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he is, he has a big thing about find your why, know your why, find your why, mm -hmm. what is your why? Um, at my work, there's a big push right now for that same ideal, uh, ideal. What is your why? Okay. Now apply your, your why to the workplace kind of a thing. <laughs> Make um, your why fit our why. I love it. Well, yeah, it's a little, I'm, I'm not going to go there, but, uh, <laughs> but what, what I will say that I like about it is that it breaks it down to why you make the decisions that you do. Mm -hmm. And Simon Sinek actually takes it a step further. Right. And he says, um, which I've done this with a few of my friends and I've still got a list of friends. <clears throat> you're on it that I haven't done it, done this with yet, but, uh, he has a small video where he says, find your why, how to, how to really find your why, if you don't know what it is, ask your friends, why are we friends? And they're most likely going to give you the generic answer. You make me laugh. You're fun to be around. I, we have similar sense of humor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, great. You just defined the word friend. Now, why am I your friend? Me. And then they're going to probably do something the same and they're going to, okay, good. You defined a close friend. What the next step is, what is it about me that draws you to our friendship? Hmm. 
And he says, eventually what you're going to do is you're going to drill it down so far that, that somebody gets to, they're going to stop talking about you and they're going to talk about them. Right. Their values, what matters to them. And wh- how you bring that out in them. And if you have an emotional response, that's probably because that's your why. Yeah. And so far, I've got six friends on my list that I've done that I want to do this with. I've done it with four. Mm -hmm. So far, doing that has really shown me my why. Hmm. And because the things that I have the emotional response for is not the the items that I thought I would. Would it be asking too much for you to disclose what that why is, what you learned about yourself? Well, I don't want to, because uh, you're, uh, you're, <laughs> you're next. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to spoil the ending for me. You're biased. My responses. Okay. Fair right. I, fair but, um, but I, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I will probably reference. I, I wrote down a little note that uh, I'm going to borrow from uh, the analogy you gave about the bread and the well, uh, but I'm going to, I'm going to do that later, uh, kind of uh, to wrap things up. Um, But uh, I think that that mindset, the whole why mindset uh, kind of goes along finding your why anyway, Mm -hmm. goes along with what we're saying, because if you find your why, then you actually do define what's good enough. Mm-hmm. Well, precisely. And that's what I was just going to say. I mean, you, you, you almost took the words exactly out of my mouth. <laughs> if you know why you're doing a thing, then you know what the end accomplishment is. If, I, if I'm going to a job because I want to earn enough money to retire when I'm 50, there, I just defined it. I just defined the goalpost. I just set it, Right. Well, what's There's, my my question to that is actually would be what's next? You right, want to retire sure. when you're 50. Why? <laughs> right, precisely. And, and and so it all leads on, right? Way leads on to way always. But if I haven't set to myself that I'm going to this job so that I can retire at 50, then I don't know why I'm at that job. Maybe I'm at that job just because it's the only job that I've thought to have. And I could retire at any job once I was 50. What have I defined? How have I defined retirement? Have I done myself the favor of actually defining any of this stuff? Right? Those are all very, very good questions that we can be asking ourselves when we're trying to figure out what would make me happy. And that's the kind of the, the penultimate question there. What makes me happy? Right? And am I building a life that includes all of those things that make me happy? If genuine happiness and joy and peace and all of that stuff that you want, assuming that that's what you want, right? Maybe you want adventure and excitement. That's a different conversation. But if you're seeking for a sense of happiness and and being content and complete, well, you may you could probably do an awful lot worse than starting off by defining what makes that what makes you feel those things to define whether you are even pursuing them at all. There's, there's a great book that, my, that I got out of my dad's library when I was a little kid, it's called A Walk Across America. And it's about the story of a guy who, um, and it's been a long time since I read it, so if I'm, if I'm remembering it right, 
He's a corporate banker, gets divorced or breakup, and goes walking the Appalachian Trail um, from, like, I think he drives up to Maine, walks the Appalachian Trail. And he's about down to, down to New York um, when he decides he never wants to go back to work. He's got enough money, right? He has this great kind of coming to self experience where he realizes I have enough money. I'll never need more money. What I haven't done is seen the world. So he hikes all the way down the Appalachian Trail to the end of Georgia. And when he's, when he's in Georgia, just a little north of Atlanta where the trail ends, he's like, I'm not done walking. So he just starts walking west, right? Walks across Georgia, down through Mississippi, Alabama, across Texas, and ends up in California at Big Sur. And kind of has this epiphany. He's like, you know, I've seen an awful lot of the country now what I need to do with my life is completely different than what I thought it was when I was a corporate investment banker in New York. And he never goes back to New York. He never goes back to corporate banking. And he starts a completely different pursuit that's more true to his heart that gives him more joy. Because he was in the rat race, keeping up with the Joneses, trying to you know buy more Rolexes than Jim across the office, as if that was the same thing as happiness. But what he did on his walk across America is he lowered the bar of what he needed. He let all that other stuff fall away, all of the wealth and the trappings and all that, you know, fancy suits and fancy cars. And instead, what he needed was a sunset at the end of every day. I remember that clearly from, uh, from the book, that that gave him joy, watching the sunset. And then watching the sunset off the coast of Big Sur in California, where the sun sets over the Pacific Ocean, and there's nothing else between you and the sun, was a sacred thing for him. Now, you ask, many, you ask most people, what will make you most happy, having a million-dollar-a-year job or being able to see the sunset? I don't know how many people are going to pick the sunset. But I'm guessing there's a lot of people who have million-dollar-a-year jobs who would gladly give it up for something as satisfying as being able to feel joy at watching the sunset and not needing all of the other stuff, right? I mean, I'm thinking about a Dateline episode that I saw about um, uh, lottery winners. Yeah. After they won the lottery, right? You'd think all their dreams had been, all their, you know, all their dreams had been answered, but no, almost all of them were miserable except for one guy who was really happy before he won the lottery and he really liked his job. I want to say he was like a garbage man or a bus driver for the city. He loved his job. He wins the lotto, pays off his house and his mom's house and like pays off a lot of stuff, but he keeps going to work because he likes his job. He's already found happiness. So he doesn't need to do anything different. And the addition of money is just, you know, it's more water, but he's already got plenty of bread. So he doesn't need to go in search of more bread in the well to, you know, bring it back to that, to that metaphor. And I think I see that so often. I see it so often in therapy, man, couples in, you know, when I was, when I was doing couples work, I'd see couples who, what they ostensibly wanted was a happy marriage, but what they kept working at was an, was an impressive marriage those are different things right you know people who who ostensibly said they wanted to feel happy but what they were working towards in actual fact was wealth and prestige 
and those are different things. You know, you, you will not find any bread at the bottom of the well, no matter how many times you throw in the bucket. You know, I think you pretty much summed up that analogy better than anything that we've talked about <laughs> in that small little sentence about they're working for a, a, or they want a happy marriage, but they're working for a wealthy marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think is the, that's the idea that you're trying to get across uh, with this. At least that's what, what just struck my brain anyway, um, that the differences you, I, I guess, defining it going back and, uh, and uh, referring to a couple of things that we've already said, but defining what it actually means when you're working for a wealthy marriage, is that your goal or is that just what you're doing? Right. And no, I love that, man. Is that your goal or is that just what you're doing? There's a lot to unpack there. And I think that that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You, that's, that's great. And how, and for how many people is that the problem? Are you perceived pursuing a goal that matters to you or are you just doing things? Right. I love that. That's, that's good. Well, I just, I keep thinking about me being in the middle of the ocean on a sailboat going, wait, where am I? And, and where am I going? <laughs> and, and that's, you know, it's that the analogy. It's the Cheshire really, cat. Yeah. I just really, you know, when, when, when yeah. Alice sees the Cheshire cat for the first time at that crossroads and she doesn't know which way to go, that's what the Cheshire cat asks her. Well, where are you going? And she says, I don't know. Then he says, well, then it doesn't matter which path you take. The path you strike out on only matters if you know where you're trying to go. And if you have a clear sense of where you're trying to go, only then do you have the ability to recognize whether or not that destination even includes happiness for you or whether it's just more of the same. You can spend your entire life trying to keep up with the Joneses only to get to the get to the end of your life exhausted to find out that the Joneses were just trying to keep ahead of you. And none of you ever got anything that you wanted because you were so busy racing each other. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, to, to bring it back to Leonard Skinner. Be a simple kind of man. Do something that you love and understand. I think a lot of people don't even really know what they love. And certainly don't spend enough time understanding it to find a way to, to make it what they do in life, right? We just, we just kind of forest gump our way through life and land <laughs> where we land. And, you know, and, and that seems like it's permanent. But once we land there, we almost immediately begin comparing ourselves to the other things around us and trying to see what they have that we don't have. And we try to attain happiness by increasing supply, by pulling more into our lives, right? And that's, it just doesn't work. It never works. I have yet to meet a woman who feels bad about her looks, who can put on enough makeup that she feels better about her looks. Instead, she's just putting more makeup on. And the emptiness about her looks remains. How much more would she be benefited by learning how to love herself 
for how she looks and not needing the makeup. If the makeup is truly a fun hobby that she likes to do, great. I, I like to wear makeup on Halloween, but I also feel good going out without any on on the 4th of July. If makeup is a hobby that you like to do for fun, you can leave it without feeling any kind of insecurity, right? Same thing, right. With, guys, same thing with guys at the gym. Like if you love to work out, awesome. But if you get a dad bod and you feel terrible about yourself and you feel ashamed of yourself, you weren't working out because you like to work out. You were working out to try to put more of that Adonis bod kind of physical apex specimen in your account. How much more would you be have happiness if you could like yourself no matter how your body looks? And simply having a good body is, is good health and it's gonna help you live longer and have less pain. Like being physically in shape is different than looking like a fitness model. Right. Right. I mean, and, and you know, there's so many examples of this um, where, you know, people who've achieved true happiness and uh, that have talked to me about it have talked about how they achieve true happiness in spite of all of the trappings of the world, not because of their achievements. You know, what's funny is you mentioned Robin Williams earlier, and uh, I'm going to reference another comedian and knowing, uh, I think, I think you understand how I feel about like the whole hero worship of celebrityism. Yeah. Um, and so I don't often do this. However, recently Jim Carrey did an interview and he, what you just said actually made that interview come to mind to me because in the interview, he was doing it for uh, the movie that he just did that came out. I I don't remember what it was. Sonic but, 2? <laughs> I just uh, saw it with my kids. Uh, maybe. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, but in the interview, he was asked a question. He goes, you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not, and I don't recall what the question even was because his answer is what stuck in my head. And his answer is, you know what? I'm not sure. I don't know if you'll see me again after this. I'm retiring. Hmm. And the, the reporter, uh, interviewer rather, uh, says to him, well, what do you mean you're retiring? He says, well, you, you won't hear this from a lot of my peers, but you know what? I've, I've realized that I have enough. I've done enough. I don't need more. I need me. Lovely. And therefore, I'm stepping away. <laughs> and he, again, not to, not to get into the celebrity worship or anything like that, but he has gone through, and I don't agree with everything he's, he ever says or anything like that, but he has gone through an interesting transition from being the, the comic and the, yeah. the, just the spaz, basically mm -hmm. the overacting spaz, to um, a lot of what he's been saying recently. He's had a journey yeah. uh, of obvious depression. Like it was, you could see it. Yeah. 
um, to where he had some self-discovery where he went really kind of weird for a minute <laughs> and, and came back around to a, to his own version of what weird really is. Yeah. And everybody is their own version of weird, right? That's how I've always felt. But um, it's really a breath of fresh air to see somebody of that stature say, I have enough. Yeah. I have nothing more to prove. I have nothing more to accomplish. I need me. And I really like that. You know, the, the, uh, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, I forget her name. Um. <laughs> She only ever wrote that one book, or at least only published that one book. It won all the prizes. Harper For Lee. Generations. Har Harper Lee, that's her name. Yes. Right. It won all the prizes. It's a classic. It's one of my favorite books. And she didn't publish anything else. My, my understanding is that she had another book right at the end of her life, uh, or, you know, like, as, like, that she held on to and was either going to publish or published um, many, many, many years later. But Harper Lee publishes this amazing book. And as all published publication companies are wont to do, they kept hounding her for another book, telling her, you know, giving her book deal after book deal after potential book deal. And she turned them all down. And um, I vaguely remember hearing uh, a story about that. It was some, in, in something like a rest of the story, like from Paul Harvey or something, uh, a radio host was doing a show about her. And when somebody asked her why she didn't write any other books, she simply said, that's the only story that I felt like I needed to tell. I love right. that. And, and how wonderful is that? But it's so antithetical to so much of this culture of produce more, make more, crank up more widgets. If you're capable of writing a number one hit, you must write more or you're going to be a one hit wonder. Right, right. Like relegated to the to the anecdotal bin of your of your decade as if it's such a bad thing to sell 50 million copies of a song and to never write another song again. Right? That's significantly better than almost everybody ever does. But we're going to say that that person, oh, it's just a one-hit wonder. Hmm, no, maybe not. Maybe they had one story to tell. Maybe they had that one song that they wanted to share. And when they were done, it was enough. And they moved on to something else that was more meaningful to them. And I mean, I guess, I guess in a way, I'm kind of talking about myself here because I've had this kind of dual life that, you know, when I was young, you know this, Jake, when I was young, I was on the stage all the time, all the time. If I wasn't singing, I was acting. If I wasn't acting, I was dancing. If I wasn't dancing, I was cheerleading. If I wasn't cheerleading, I didn't know what the hell to do with myself, right? I was always <laughs> right. up and I was always out in front of people and loved it and genuinely loved it. And I still like it, but it was empty. I didn't get any I didn't get any joy out of it. It didn't mean anything to me. It was like, yeah, this is what I do when I'm bored, right? trying to keep myself occupied. And I was performing at a really high level, right? And right. you know, was it like world championship level for tap dancing, et cetera, et cetera. And none of it ever really felt like it mattered. And my own value, right? This is, you know, knowing what matters to me and finding my why. 
I need to make an impact that matters to me. I need to leave footprints behind. And this probably goes back to my dad who died early when he was you know, still building himself. He was 28 when he died. And he left this awesome legend, but not much of a legacy. He was working towards it. So I, I, I always knew that I needed to do something with my life that really mattered. And I didn't know what that meant. I, I couldn't have told you what really matters. My, my talents and my friend group and just random chance kind of, you know, blew me in the direction of performance. So that's what I did. And I was pretty good at it. But what really matters to me is being a therapist. And I've had a lot of people talk to me when they find out that I used to perform at a high level and that I have friends in Hollywood and whatever. They all look at me like, oh, how disappointed you must be that you didn't follow them into Hollywood. I'm like, that's the stupidest thing. <laughs> no, I, I feel bad for them that they're in Hollywood because they're miserable. And they're constantly <laughs> seeking approval from other people who are paid to not like anything. And they're stuck in this weird rat race of, of constantly having to do another product project. Otherwise, they fade into obscurity. And I look at my life and I find myself to be very blessed that I got out. I almost feel like I like like I escaped like I escaped a, a poor like a poverty like I escaped poverty or the or gang culture, right? I got out <laughs> of that entertainment vibe and was able to find a calling and a, and a vocation that really matters to me because it's a constant source of joy and meaning and value. And you know, even with this podcast, right? My wife will be like, hey, it's been it's been a few weeks since you put out a podcast. You need to put out another episode. And I I feel that pressure. And then within me wells up this, this statement of like, no, I don't. It's my own podcast. I'll make an episode when I want to. And if I feel like it, I'll do it. And if I don't, I won't. Because I don't need to keep up with the Joneses or you know, with Mike Rowe or some of these other, you know, great podcast hosters. I don't need to. I could feel that pressure, but that pressure wouldn't make me happy. So I intentionally disregard it and instead try to do like Destin from Smarter Every Day, which is to stay true to my voice, stay true to my mission, because that's why I'm doing the podcast, because I wanted to put some stuff out there for myself, really. And if somebody else benefits from it, then great, that's extra bonus points but I don't need to fit somebody else's model. And I think, you know, this really resonates strongly with me because, you know, in my own life, when I got out of the entertainment kind of racket, it's happened so many times that people find out that I used to dance and they want me to show them. <laughs> oh, we'll tap dance for us. We want to see. I'm like, first off, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a trained seal, right? I'm not going to clap for you when you throw me a fish. Second off, right? <laughs> um, second off, that was a thing that I used to do. And it was good within its confines. I don't do it anymore. And I'm okay with that. I don't need to do it anymore. If I told myself that I should still be a performer, I would feel bad about being a therapist. And that would be a disservice to everything that I do in actuality yeah i'm gonna <clears throat> next time my mom asks you to dance i'm gonna i'm gonna start clapping like a seal <laughs> Just, <I'm>, <laughs> yep <laughs>
<laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna because she does it every time every, yeah every time I, I love your mom every time i see her she's like oh do you still tap dance like yep. no no do you still wait tables no okay right we both yeah uh, yep exactly exactly <laughs> yep uh, that's that's amazing well yeah. on that vein dan let me actually uh say in, in a very similar tone um I think I have found in myself what fulfills me in that same, in that same way where you're, where you're saying being a therapist. Right. Uh, now for me, it's actually, I've, I feel like I've been drawn to my specific profession of adult learning, mm-hmm. learning and development because I have this natural mindset and what my natural mindset is, is to, to utilize the analogy of water and bread, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking for bread in the well. I'm looking for, uh, even though I, I have the bread on the side, right? Mm-hmm. My, I have found that my being, my happiness, my joy actually comes from breaking bread with my friends and neighbors hmm. and giving what I, what, what I have. Sure. And I have found that sharing, lifting up, whether that's knowledge, whether that's, um, Hey man, I got uh, my truck broke down halfway home from Lake Powell. Can you come help me? Well, geez, I don't have a, a trailer, but you know what? I know who does. Hmm. And I'll be there in as soon as I can. <laughs> like Powell's a four four and a half hour drive, so yeah, I'll be there as soon as I can. Um, or whether it's a, a friend is overseas and his wife needs a place to stay, I'm going to do what I can to offer that. Yeah, to be there. And that is what I have found. And, and my version of, of keeping up with the Joneses, for me, I've, I've gotten rid of that. I don't care what my neighbors have. I don't care what they do. But I want to be what I view as successful so that I have a better opportunity tomorrow to give time, service, money, whatever it may be, more than I did today. And, and in doing so, you are finding happiness not in the accomplishment of things, but rather in the recognition of what you have and that you have to give, that you have to spare, right? So that's exactly what you're yes. doing. You, are, you yep. aren't trying to increase happiness in your life by increasing the supply. You've decreased the demand. And by decreasing the demand enough, you have found yourself suddenly in surplus so that you have extra to give. There's deep joy and meaning there. And some people, I I mean, tragically never get to that recognition that that is where happiness comes from. Not from having more, but from recognizing how much you have 
and being able to to turn that around and and create a blessing for someone else that you not not, not only do you have enough you have surplus right i mean i've seen you um in your in your current job jake i mean you've just blossomed as a as a trainer when we were on the phone earlier today you were on a break from your training and you were eager to get back to it right that's yes. that's significant to be engaged in something that matters so much to you that you would rather go do that than talk on the phone with your buddy, right? Like there's a lot of people who would look for any excuse in the world to not have to do what they're paid to do because they hate it. Hmm. Um, and maybe they're in, maybe like, there's, this will be my last anecdote because I just saw the clock. We're like in an hour and a half. Um, yes. This is something that I've shared multiple, multiple times in therapy. And I don't even know where I came across this story. But so, so it's completely apocryphal, but essentially the story goes, there's a guy who works in a toll booth at one of the mega bridges, like the Oakland, like, like the Oakland bridge or some other kind of mega bridge like that, where there's, you know, 50 toll booths all lined up in a row. And the observed phenomenon was that this guy's line of cars at his booth was always the longest line. And people would intentionally wait in line at his booth and like spend the extra time going through his booth rather than go through one of the open ones that um, they, they could have just you know dropped their money and gone. So it became kind of this phenomenon and a reporter drops in and kind of interviews him to see what the deal is. And the first thing the reporter does is drives through this guy's booth and notices that the guy's dancing in his booth. And he has a boom box inside his booth and he's playing music and like doing dance moves. And he takes people's money in some kind of a dance move that he's developed. There's a slot there. You could just drop the money in by yourself, but he takes the money by hand. And as she, I'm assuming it was a she, but as the reporter goes through the, goes through the turns, goes through the booth, she finds herself coming away with a smile because she saw his little robot dance and you know, it was like, wow, that was kind of cool, like entertaining, like has totally in the zone. So she recognized immediately, that is the booth I want to go through next time I come through. So she sits down right. with the guy and does the interview and asks him, he's like, what, what is it about your job? Why do you like your job so much? Right. And he says, hold on, let me, let me, let me show you something. And he stands up and points at all the other booths and says, what do you see? And the lady says, toll booths. He says, no, those are coffins. Every morning at the beginning of the shift, live people walk into those. I know because I see them. But during the shift when they're in there, there's no life at all. And I refuse to be dead. That's why, that's why I do what I do. Right? Not to entertain other people, not to be the most popular toll gate, you know, toll booth employee, but because he personally didn't want to have a job where he walked in and was essentially just a living dead person for eight hours until his shift was over. He wasn't willing to do that. So he brought the energy to his work that he wanted to have for himself and in turn spread joy to everybody else that drove through to the point that people were willing to sit in traffic for longer than they needed to just to give this guy specifically their, their bridge money. Right. That's that says something. It says something about the kinetic nature of of, you know, finding your jam and doing things that, that, that bring you actual happiness. He didn't demand more from his work. 
He didn't demand a pay raise. He didn't demand everybody else dance with him. He didn't demand anything from anybody. There was no requirement of more. Instead, he lowered his demand, right? Became happy with what he had and brought his happiness to it instead of expecting it to give him happiness in some magical, mysterious way, which is, I think is remarkable. Anyway, I've shared that story many, many times. I can't even remember where I read it, but it's one of those little, little like sidebar articles that newspapers put in to just fill up space. And it has always stuck with me. Right. I love those. Sometimes those are some of my favorites. Anyway, man, we're coming up on an hour and 45 minutes, which would be the longest podcast session that I podcast episode that I've ever made. So thank you for a riveting conversation. Is there any, um, anything that's on your mind that you feel like you need to get out? Otherwise it's going to burrow a hole in your brain. No, not at all. I just, again, I appreciate the invite. Uh, I, I appreciate as always the conversation. Uh, it's my pleasure, man. I'm always smarter when I'm talking to you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> buddy. Well, thanks again for joining me and, uh, and thank you everybody out there for listening and for joining us for the conversation. Hope it was edifying and at least thought provoking and uh you know join us again sometime soon or not whenever i feel like getting around to it and uh in the meantime let's take care of each other mm-hmm.